You're listening to TIP. In today's episode, I'm speaking with Tobias Carlyle. Tobias is the founder and managing director of Acquires Funds and has $86 million under management. The financial markets are going crazy these days. The S&P 500 touched bear territory and the Nasdaq has been hit even harder, only to see the market rebound. In today's episode, we're discussing how to best take advantage of the current market conditions. But before we do, you hear why Tobias just rang the bell on the New York Stock Exchange. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Tobias Kylile. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to the Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Broderson, and I'm here with Tobias Carlyle. Tobias, what a day to be having this interview. Thank you so much for joining the show. My pleasure, Stick. I always love chatting to you. It's great to be back. Toby, it's May 27th, and the S&P 500 is down 15%. The Nasdaq is down 25 year to date. But before we get to all of that, this is just, it's just crazy what we're seeing right now in the markets. First things first, I saw that you rang the bell on the New York Stock Exchange the other day. I have to ask, what was the occasion? Yeah, it was the third year anniversary of the listing of the Acquirers Fund of Zig. And if you know anything about ETFs, you might know that the big dates for ETFs are the third year. To get to the third year, the average ETF fails by the third year. And so it was good to get through. And so I thought we'd have a celebration. So I took my wife and kids and some extended family and the team and everybody, and we all went to New York. And you can't otherwise get into the stock exchange. So you can't walk the floor. You can't do any of those things without some sort of special invitation. By virtue of the fact that we're listed there, you can do those things. So we went in, got, you know, you get this great tour around the whole building. It's a really beautiful old building. They point out where there was a terrorist attack in 1909 when they tried to drive a horse buggy full of explosives through, the, through one of the walls and blow it up. The, apparently the the damage is still on the outside wall because JP Morgan didn't want it cleaned up. He wanted some sort of reminder of it on the wall. Then we rang the opening bell. That day was the worst day for the stock market since June 2020. So I'm sorry, everybody. That was, that was partially my fault. That was the terrible slippery finger on the opening bell caused that. I can't help but, but wonder because we do see this on, on CNBC or whatnot and someone is ring the bell. And do you have any kind of specific criteria for what it takes? I know in your specific case, you said it was like three years after the ETF was listed. Is there any kind of, you need to, you know, meet this checklist? It's fine. It's not easy. They have any IPO has precedence. So you have to be very flexible about when you can do it. And then we've been negotiating for a little while for a date. And it's just, it's been helpful that you know, for a long time, the stock market was so strong. There were so many IPOs that it was hard to get. There was just an IPO every single day. And um, we needed this sort of volatility. So the fact that the stock market is down 15, 20%, whatever it is since the start of the year, that was helpful to us because it meant fewer people were going public. So that's one of them. And then being listed on the stock exchange is another one that helps unless you're sort of some very prominent person. I'm not at all. It's just, I just got it because of the listing. And I just thought it'd be fun. I just wanted to take the kids and show them you know, we walk the floor on it. They're all too young to sort of know what's going on, but, but I just wanted to give them the experience. So we did a whole lot of touristy stuff in New York as well. We went and saw 
Lady Liberty and went and looked at the Empire State Building and the Brooklyn Bridge and the High Line and all of these sort of really fun little things for kids to do. So it was mostly like a kid's vacation, but the rest of it was sort of ringing the bell. It was fun. You were there with your beautiful family and you, like, you look into the camera and I don't know what, what they told you. It looked like you were saying, you need to look into the camera. And then at some point in time, you know, dad is going to like push a button and then just clap, just smile and clap. And the kids are like, what yeah. is going on? It was just, just a great, great video. And, and I guess a really fun family me- memory already. Yeah, it was cool. They tell you there's all of that like clap really hard, pretend you're really excited and, you know, you start the clapping off. So it's a, it's a little bit artificial, but it's fun. But then it's very loud, like the bell is very loud and, uh, and it gets going. You know, it's a beautiful old building. And then they've got, everybody knows what the floor looks like with all of those computers and with all of the guys in the blue jackets. And CNBC's booth is right there in front with uh, whoever the morning crew is at the day. It was cool. It was a really fun experience, one I won't forget in a, in a long time. Easy to, to understand why. It looked amazing. Toby, we're here to talk about these current market conditions. The markets are just so volatile these days. And now we actually seen a small rebound in the market. The Dow just rose for the fifth, sixth straight day. And the S&P 500 NASDAQ are, are poised to, to snap their seven-week losing streak. I have to ask you, what is your 33,000 view of the financial markets right now? The way that I think about the market is on a valuation basis. And if you look at any of those very long-run valuation metrics of the market, and I'm talking about like the Schiller PE, the CAPE, cyclically adjusted PE, Tobin's Q, which is the replacement value of assets over the market value of those assets, or Buffett's measure, which is GNP, gross national product, on total market capitalization. By any one of those metrics, we're still very, very expensive. That doesn't mean anything. So since I would have said the same thing in 2016 at the bottom in that drawdown, I would have said the same thing in 2018 in that drawdown, and I would have said the same thing in March 2020 at the bottom of that drawdown. The fact that it's still very expensive doesn't stop it at all from bouncing and going to brand new highs from here. So I have no idea what direction it's going to go. I just think that the role of valuation is it gives you some sort of expectation for what you can earn over the longer run. And at the top, before we sort of had this fall off, it had got to virtually, you had baked in to the returns, a negative return on the index. And then you're going to get some very small positive return by virtue of the dividends that you're going to receive, which were well below what they are on average, in any case, on a yield basis. But all of that means that over a decade, you're probably not going to earn very much in the index. Having said that, I don't know where we are in this drawdown, but the thing that characterizes the very big bear market drawdowns and you can look at this in a 2000 to 2002, that's, that's what I would characterize as sort of a mega bear. That's, that's the way some people describe it, to distinguish it from flash crashes. So we would say that March 2020 was a flash crash. You know, it went down very quickly, but it also recovered very quickly. Not many people took advantage of it. Buffett didn't buy anything on the way down. If you go back and look at 2000, 2002, 2007 to 2009, the thing that characterizes those drawdowns is that they had many, many bounces. And the bounces are very big. We're talking like a 25% bounce off the bottom that then turns into a lower low. And it happens 14, 15, 16, 17 times. And it's that constant sort of bounce to a lower low that is the thing that ultimately just 
destroys your confidence in your ability to invest or your desire to be in the market. And that's why most people tend to be, you know, just stop the pain, I'm getting out. And it's March 2009. We've been going down for two years. We've seen 17 lower lows. This thing's going to keep on going forever. So I want to pull my money out now. And then it's at that moment of maximum pain for maximum people that the market finds its bottom and rockets. So the, knowing that it's impossible to predict on any metric that you can think of, it's just impossible to work out where the market's going. The best idea is to sort of follow whatever your personal investment plan is. So I'm young enough that I'm fully invested in the market. I'm fully invested in the market all the time. I hold cash for sort of, you know, beyond my sort of living expenses, not much. Everything else is in the market. Because I think that the stuff that I'm invested in, I can see the embedded returns, the expected returns out of those things. And I think they're quite good. I think that they're better than, you know, value has trailed for a long time. So when I look at my stuff, I think that it's, and I do think that there's this portion of the market in that sort of the cheapest decile of the market in the US, because that's where I'm looking, that's where I'm talking about. Those stocks are so far away from the index. They are as far away from, they're, they're further away from the index in terms of evaluation than they were in 2000 at the peak and 2009 at the trough. I know that sounds funny to sort of describe them that way, but that's really the way, that's the way I think about it. I'm looking at the valuation of the portfolio relative to the valuation of the index. And they have never been as far apart as they are right now. And this, the, the, the ratio is, is significantly higher than even the MSCI. So I think on that basis, there's a very good chance that the very undervalued stuff has a good run here. And it may look something like 2000, where the index is soft for a long period of time, but value, which is sort of disappointed for so long, actually starts to get its run. And I think that that's already underway. I don't think that that has to happen. I think that that's already started happening. I think if you look at most value portfolios, including mine, or if you look at, uh, you know, the, if you look at the French data, who, who's the FAMR and French, French data is available free online. It's not, it's, not, it's not super easy to manipulate, but I know there are lots of young guys out there who are able to manipulate this stuff. If you go and grab that data, I do this all the time, and the data's out there for free. You can have a look at how wide the spread is, and you can see that the spread started closing in about September 2020, September, October, November depending on which ratio you look at, they all find their bottom around that point. And since then, they've been outperforming the market. And so that's my expectation that even though the market is very expensive, we don't know where it's going to go. The only way that you can approach one of these problems like this, where you don't know where the market's going to go, is to start valuing stuff. And if you look at these things on a valuation basis, I think there's some very good value out there. There are very good businesses with rock-solid balance sheets. If this is not the bottom, it's no sin to hold these good businesses when they go through a period like this, provided that it's the sort of business that, you know, it's not the sort of business, it's not like a, say, a credit card company where it's squeezed on both sides and it might find that it has people unable to pay through a period of time like that. You should be wary of that sort of business model. But for most businesses, people don't change their behavior that much when there's a stock market crash. For most people, it's not relevant to them. You know, I think people will still be, dom still, people will still be buying Domino's pizza through this stock market crash. And people have some odd behaviors when stock market crashes go on. People can't buy big luxuries anymore. So they buy little luxuries. They call this the lipstick effect. So people may spend more money on small luxuries. And so you might find that there are some luxury businesses out there, you know, ostensibly luxury businesses, even though what this, the units of product that they sell are cheaper than the very big ticket items, that they might not even know that there's a recession going on. They may just 
print money through this whole thing because people take those little Starbucks might have that. Some of the lipstick, com- some of the makeup companies may see that. That you may see that in the consumer discretionary. So that's sort of that's that's the way I think about it. That while there is this there is this big risk that we do have this very big drawdown, and I, I think it's probably likely that we do continue on down from here. But I don't know. I should, and I think that it, it's not really relevant for most investors. You should be going through and looking at the underlying businesses in any case. There's typically always a good narrative, and you turn on CNBC, and there's always like the mug went up by 0.4 or went down by XYZ, and they're always like, oh, it's because of this. And we, the thing is, we don't know. We don't know if it's a if it 12% of the reason was because of SPACs or. You know, or, or the drawdown was because of the interest rate. We probably have an idea of that, but how much of that is it? And that's that's one of the challenges for all investors. I do want to say that it feels emotionally different than March 2020. And let's just leave the whole like pandemic aside. That in itself was different. I remember I was asking myself, so what's a pandemic really? I think most of us know that now, but it certainly feels different in many ways. I, the drawdown at the time was much faster and was also more event-driven. It seems today like some of that is value-driven. And I'm not talking about value investing, but simply because of the valuations right now. Of course, some of that could be attributed to, to a rising interest rate also. But it certainly seems like some of the, I don't know if the right term is easier money is gone. I was sitting there reading this, this memo by uh, Howard Marks. I, I subscribed to his um, to his write-up, and it, it's absolutely wonderful. And he talked about how the average SPAC that was de-SPAC'd since 2020 by completing acquisition is selling at $5.25. And if you might remember, the issue prices would be $10 for something like that. So just to give you like one of many, many data points of, of what's going on, it's probably also why you see this sell-off in tech. Keep in mind though, whenever we talk about tech, you know, we always discount these cash flows and in tech, definitely not all tech, but generally in tech, the cash flows are further out. So whenever you discount that back to today, you just get a low valuation. So, so it does make sense that tech stocks are selling off faster than, than other stocks. But of course, you can also again point to, to the valuation. Yeah, I, I think I, I tweeted a few times when the SPAC boom took off that I remember 2009 pretty vividly, 2008, 2009, because the same thing happened. All the SPACs traded down below their issue price. And the game became, can enough people in an activist sort of sense buy this SPAC to force them to not do a deal and return the cash? Because they're, you know, if, if a SPAC has a $10 in cash behind it and it's trading at $5, if they can't complete a deal by the two-year window that they get to do that, they have to return the capital. And so that's a pretty easy double in this market, $5 to $10. You have some, you know, it's they're, they're heavily incentivized to do a deal because they get twenty percent of the of the capital in the company. So they really, really want to do a deal, and the investors outside really, really don't want them to do the deal. So you can see a little bit of fireworks. That's that's almost certainly about to start happening. I, I just think that it's funny how I, I don't think that I've been in the markets for that long. I've been watching for about twenty years, and I think it's amazing to me how regularly the cycles come around and how short everybody's memories are. You know, SPACs were just, it's just cash at a, at a premium to cash. And when the, but it's cash dressed up as equity trading at a premium to cash. And when people see that in the market and they trade at a premium, that's your signal that probably it's getting too frothy and there's, there's a downward coming. 
Yeah, I think that's a good point. And we tend to have this linear way of thinking. You know, I mentioned March 2020 before. We have this idea of this happened last time, so there's a higher probability that it would happen again. That's generally not the case. History does rhyme, but it doesn't mean it has to rhyme on the last recession you saw or the last bear market or, or whatnot. When people are paying a premium for cash, that says that the market's too speculative. And now they're paying a discount for cash, which says that probably the market's expectations are too low. But you know, $5 for $10, it doesn't really make any sense. There's some risk in them whether they do a deal or not. But for, you know, if it traded at $8, then it's already accounting for the 20% dilution. At $5, you're, you're in a pretty good position. Your worst, worst case outcome is that they do a deal and you get diluted. And it's now worth $8 in the acquisition, provided that they do a sensible acquisition. So $5 is probably too, too cheap. It's some indication that the market is becoming disconnected from underlying values and we may be closer to a bottom than not. But I really think it's impossible to tell for the reasons that you highlighted before that you know, they can be talking about somebody said something and it gave the market confidence. All the, you know, one of the Fed chairs came out and said something and it gave the market confidence. But what really happened was that some big hedge fund was blowing up and covering its shorts and it looked like a big rally. That's what makes investing so difficult because it's really chaotic. It's, it's sort of closer to chaos than it is to than it is to some sort of orderly, sensible, logical thing. And everybody's doing different things for different reasons. And the sum of all of those is the trajectory of the market, but we don't really know why anybody's doing anything underneath. Buffett has taught us that we should focus on micro and not macro. In other words, we should focus on the individual company. That being said, even individual businesses have to consider that interest rate is creeping up right now. And even if they don't have, say, debt they had to refinance shortly, they still have to take notice of the macro environment. Perhaps the company has customers, suppliers who are positioned differently than they are. But I want to throw that over to you, Toby, and say, so we are going from this low interest environment into this high interest rate environment. What are the called two or three most fundamental changes for us as value investors in this new scenario? Let me just, just to be painful, let me challenge the first assumption. Cash is a commodity and the price of cash is the interest rate. And you, you limit the errors that you make. Your best guess for where a commodity price is going to be in 12 months time is where it's trading now. And I know that that doesn't make any sense at all because they wiggle around so much, but that's the point that you'll make the fewest errors in guessing where a commodity will be by guessing it will be where it is now because it could be up and it could be down and you don't know. And the average of all those guesses about where it's trading that doesn't apply at the very extreme. So when oil was negative $37, it was probably more likely that oil was going to be positive in a year or so from there. And when interest rates were exceptionally low, probably more likely that they were going to go up. Having said that, the fact Europe had negative rates meant that we it wasn't clear that the US, for example, could avoid negative rates. And that was a, that was a discussion that was going on for a long time, whether America would go into negative rates. And America may still go into negative rates. I, I, I don't know. I don't know where it's going to go. But it does seem more likely now, given that the inflation numbers over here are running so hot, that the Fed at least can't lower rates. So they may have to raise rates from here. So the rates are, the rates are approaching their long-run mean. They're still lower than their long-run average, but they're getting closer to their long-run average. When that happens, Buffett says it acts like gravity, the stock market. And the reason is if you're doing a discounted cash flow analysis or you're doing any kind of, I don't do DCFs, but I still know that the 10-year is 
I think of the 10 year as the hurdle rate. And so the 10 year is pushing up about three. The long run average is about six. It's been as low as 0.3. I think it got in, in the depths of the, in March, 2020. 0.3 to three, you know, that changes your assessment of that. If you were just to plug that naively into a DCF, that changes a tenfold increase in the interest rate should reduce your valuation by something like 10 times. A doubling of the rate should increase, should reduce your your assessment of value by about half. If you look at the long run average and you plug that in, that'll reduce your DCFs again. And if you look at where they got to in 1982, which was the absolute peak of interest rates in the US under Paul Volcker, there aren't very many companies that are going to be worth book value, if that's the case. There will be some, but there aren't, just going, to, there aren't going to be very many. It's, it's going to be the best of the best that are worth more than book value in that environment. Most companies will be worth less than book value in that kind of environment. Because well, the way that I think about valuation, if there's something out there that earns 3% with no risk other than duration risk, which is the, the wiggling around of the price. So if interest rates go from 3 to 6 the 10-year will halve, and something else that's got a 3% free cash flow yield on it should halve as well because it's no longer worth book. It's worth half book now, or it's worth half where it's trading at least. So that's the way I think about it. So the risk is really to the valuation of everything if rates go up. But then you have other factors in there that make it a little bit more complicated because banks will earn a little bit more money. They'll get a better spread between what they're lending and what they're earning, although they've got a pretty good spread now from the difference between my checking account and my, my credit card, they seem to be pretty wide in there. They're doing okay. I'm not going to worry about them. And then businesses that are highly levered will struggle to, with too much debt. That will be harder for them. They'll have to, re, have to roll the debt or, or hold that debt for a long period of time. So it's, it's not a simple matter of saying that everything will come down. It is a little bit more complicated because higher rates do help some businesses. They do hurt some leverage businesses and they change valuation. So it is going to be very, very complicated when it happens. But on balance, I think that it, valuations inevitably have to come down. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests to the maintenance to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? 
How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Yeah, it, it certainly looks like it. And I can just say that here in Europe, the boss of the European Central Bank, she said that we would stop having negative interest rate in around September. That was her expectation right now. So, What does inflation look like in Europe? It's around 7% right now. So, oh, so tough, you know, it, yeah, it, yeah it's, it's running pretty hard. The economies here in Europe are just structured very differently than in the States. And uh, the labor market isn't as, as tight. So... I'm not surprised that they're doing what they're doing now, but I do expect that you won't see it to the same extent as you see in the States. Our economies aren't doing as well. So no, no surprises there. So that's probably why you would see higher interest rates, but not as high as in the States. And also, of course, why you, why you see such a weak euro right now with the capital inflows uh, into the States. Hey, so Toby, I wanted to talk to you about positioning in these uh, market conditions, you would read a lot about bear markets these days and, and they say, oh, it's, it's, you know, when it's down 20%, there's not like a big difference if it's like 19.9 on 20 point whatever. But we did, see, we did see an intraday last week of the S&P 500 in bear territory. Most investors would probably say it's more, it's more mental, more than a specific number, which was what you were getting at before, Toby, about that losing that, that confidence in the market. But regardless, I'm looking at one of your funds, like CIG, and you are a, a deep value investor. And I can see that the correlation short term has been quite significant, which is more or less the case for, for all assets. Like whenever something happens, you know, things go down at the same time. What is the correlation between something like the S&P 500 and deep value or time? Anything that is, you know, so Zig is a long only product and we, I, that, that is a change since December last year, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but it's a long-only product. It's a little bit more concentrated, but it still holds US assets. It's not going to offer a wildly divergent performance from the S&P 500, just by virtue of the fact that they're drawing from the same pool, essentially, although Zig buys smaller companies in the S&P 500. But everything is pretty tightly correlated, particularly when you go through an event like this, because this is one of the things that investors will say that correlations go to one, which means that when people are panicking, they don't sell what they want to sell, they sell what they can sell. And just anything gets 
tipped out. And that's why it's such a great opportunity for if you're a, that, that, that's what creates the great opportunities for value. So I think value typically does, the two times that value seems to really stand out and the times that value doesn't do very well, the tail end of a bull market is terrible for value investors because I've observed this, that value tends to sell off before the market does. And so value will have this sort of sell off. And I think partly that's what's happened over the last few years that it, I think the market has looked expensive and toppy and the market value sort of sold off and then recovered a little bit and then sold off again and recovered a little bit and sold off again. And March 2020 was a great example of that where value got sold harder than anything else. And it was a really unusual thing because my portfolio tends to be net cash. So the, the companies in there tend to have more cash on the balance sheet than debt. And the market itself tends to be more debt than cash. And so that should have a higher, if you think about the equity as a portion of the capital structure, I don't want to make this too complicated for everybody, but it gives it a higher beta. It gives it a high, it should move more. The market should, something that is levered should move more than something that is unlevered from financial theory. And my portfolio was moving more than the rest of the market. So there was, it was just general sort of, it was, it's possible that it was like a, the stuff that was going to be online was going to do better in a pandemic type world. And the stuff that's more physical bits was going to be more difficult in that kind of world. But whatever the thesis of the market was, the beta on my ETF at that time was higher than the market. So it went down more. It ended up being at the bottom, it was they were down about the same amount, roughly about 37% each. And then they bounced off there, but we didn't bounce as hard as the rest of the market did. And that sort of set of circumstances persisted until we got all the way through to September 2020 and of that sort of last quarter of 2020, which was when there started to be a little bit of differentiation where value started working again. So I, I think we, had, we saw what was a little bit of a crash, what is typical behavior of value versus the market that we tend to sell off first. In that instance, we sold off more, but I don't think that's ordinary behavior. And then the recovery was slower but it did eventually kick off and then value started performing very well. That was one of the things that helped value for a while there from September 2020. It was only a very short burst and, and it sort of stopped working again about April 2021. At the time, Zig was long short. So Zig's shorts really started working last year because I tend to be short the stuff that, I don't, I don't mean to pick on Kathy Wood, but I tend to be short more arc type you know, her ETF arc, those sort of holdings were the sort of stuff that I tended to be short, the stuff that didn't have the momentum in it. So a lot of the performance last year in Zig was as a result of the short book going down a lot. And that helped disguise the fact that the longs were a little bit soft. And so now we've got to a point, I think, where we were, the longs again were soft going into this until sort of April. And then since April, and this is, this is only the end of May, so it's not a very long period of time. But I think we're now in the teeth of the drawdown. And in the teeth of the drawdown, value starts looking better again. So when, the, when everything's selling off, value seems to hold together a little bit better. Value will find a bottom first and it will bounce harder. That's the typical behavior from value because these are the things that have been sold out the most. And so I'm very optimistic about my biases that I would like a crash and because that, that'll be the thing that will help value. And I also think we just generally it's better for humanity of things trade closer to what they're worth so that everybody participates on the upside and you don't have these huge crashes, which we sort of, we're probably overdue for one. And if to get back to normal valuations, it's a long way down still from here. 
So I, I think that I try not to think too much. I've said this before, but I try not to think too much like a stock market operator trying to predict all of the wiggles and what, what everything's going to do. And I try to think more like a business owner, which is looking at the cash flows and so on. But I've been doing it for so long that I, and I spend a lot of my time looking at back tests as well. So I, I have an idea of the typical behavior of the market and value. And I think that we're seeing pretty typical behavior now where value has started outperforming a little bit as the, the crash gets underway. The other thing that I point out is that this was um, Ken Fisher pointed this out. And I've said something similar in the past, but Ken Fisher said that the first two thirds of a bear market, you see about one third of the drawdown. In the first two thirds in time, you see one third of the drawdown in magnitude. And the last third of time, you see two thirds of the drawdown in magnitude. And that just, that's that sort of waterfall type looking shape. But through then, you've got these like wiggles. You have the market bouncing all the way down. You have the 17 bounces or whatever it'll be. And so I think we've gone through the two thirds of time that give us the one third of drawdown. And probably what we have in front of us is the one third of time that gives us the two thirds in drawdown. What I used to say is that what I have noticed on average, looking back at the S&P 500 to, I think, goes back to 1850 or something like that. The typical length of time for a bear market is about 18 months. And the first 12 months, nothing much happens. You're basically almost back at all-time highs 12 months into it. And it's that last six months that really terrifies people. That's the really hard sell-off. And so 2008, 2009 was about 20 months from top to bottom. And the, the selling really didn't get underway until Q4 2008, Q1 2009. And I sort of think that's, we've probably not, if this turns into a mega bear, we haven't really seen the big selling yet. I, and I think it's probably about to kick off anytime soon. But if it's just a regular old market, we probably rally back from here. I, I have no idea what's going to happen. I just find it helpful to think through these scenarios. So I don't panic when we get the really hard sell-off. I'll say, well, this is sort of what we were hoping for. Now we're going to get some good valuations that'll help performance on the other side. This is a good thing. Definitely don't sell all your positions out because you think it's going to go to zero. So Toby, keeping that in mind and knowing the performance of last year, and you said some of that performance came from the shorts. Also your, I wouldn't say your expectations because I, that probably wouldn't be reasonable. We don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I can't help but play devil's advocate here and say that Zig transitioned from a long short to a long only and to active management. Why is that, given what you just said there before? It was a philosophical change. So I, I had this, I've had this, I think that the, the pandemic had this impact on me that I realized that really it was, it's possible to do very well in the market provided that you stay in the market for long enough. Because I've been watching, you know, value's been underperforming for a very long period of time. It's been miserable being a value investor, particularly the way that I practice. And I shouldn't say this. There are some guys out there who are at the much growthier end of the spectrum, and they did seem to do better, and they understood that market better than I did. I didn't understand that market. And it took until sort of September 2020 when we saw that finally turn around. And I probably didn't realize that it was happening until 2021 that we were actually starting to outperform all of a sudden. That had this sort of profound impact on me where I started thinking that, that really the key to this business, and Buffett has been saying this for a long time, I just haven't been listening to him or hearing what he was saying, and a lot of other investors too. The key to performing 
over the very long term is staying in the market for a very long period of time and not blowing up. You just have to survive. If you can survive any market, there's always, there's so much luck and opportunity in the market. You just have to be alive to capture it at the time. And so I started going through all of the sources of risk in my portfolios and all of the sources of risk in my life. And one of the things that I found in the portfolios, and I just, I thought, what other ways that people have blown up in the past? Too much debt is an obvious one. People blow up with too much debt. Overpaying, you can overpay and you can, blo- you can be down 90%. We've just seen that happen to a whole lot of companies. You could have a business model that is akin to picking up pennies in front of a steamroller. So I think some of those credit businesses, I don't want to name them because some of them look cheap. They're kind of, they're they're difficult decisions to make, but I think that on balance, I'm probably going to avoid them because they have a lot of embedded liability in there. They may be unable to collect on some of these credit cards. Those sort of businesses and the other thing that's in there is of course being short because a short has unlimited loss potential. Now, I shorted very small. I rebalance regularly. I'm in stuff that has no momentum and I'm in stuff that has no intrinsic value. Shocking financials. But I realized that when you, when you go through a market where AMC rallies the way it does or the AMC and GME rally the way that they do, you know, that took out Melvin Capital and Gabe Plotkin has been a good investor and that, sort of hit, that fund is now wound up. So I just started looking at all of the potential sources of risk And I realized that being a little, even even shorting, even though I think that there was about as little risk in the shorts as you could possibly have put in, there was still some risk in there. And I just thought, I'll just eliminate every source of potential risk in the portfolio. The switch from passive to active was really, it's just a a change in form rather than a change in in substance. That's just me, rather than passing the, the way that you run an active, a passive fund is you have to create an index and you give that to an index provider and then the index provider provides that to a sub-advisor who trades the portfolio. With active management, you just cut out the index provider or the way that I invest, I cut out the index provider and I, my sub-advisor and I just deal with each other the way that any other fund is run, the way that ARK is run, any other fund, any traditional sort of mutual fund or hedge fund or managed account where I can trade the portfolio. I, I, have a, I don't do any trading personally, but I, I, can, I give them the portfolio to trade. So that's really no great change, but it's worth mentioning just because there have been some tax reasons why you couldn't be an, an active fund in the past, and they've now taken away those, those reasons. So it's an active fund that has all of the capital gains, tax advantages of a passive fund. So how does that work in practice, Toby? Whenever you say that you don't do any of the trading yourself and you ask someone else to, to do it, is it a specific, please buy... 50,000 shares in Disney, but only up to this price? Like, how does that work in, in real life? You could, I could hire in a trader and I could do that trading myself. It's just, I don't have any great expertise in trading and I don't particularly like it. I'm not a very good trader. I know there are people who are very good at getting the, the low or the high of the day or getting the, their price. I'm not that person. I do all the wrong things when I try to trade. And so I just, I'm better off finding a firm that does it professionally, that has all of the market depth and all of the experience and expertise, and they just know how to work a position and get it on or off. And so I have a firm called Toroso that does my, they're my sub-advisor. That's all disclosed in the prospectus. I tell them what I want the portfolio to look like, and then they trade the portfolio to look like the model portfolio. And then over the course of, over a period of time, the model portfolio starts deviating from what the fund's portfolio looks like. And at that point, I'll go back to them and I'll say, I'd like it to trade 
the portfolio back into this. We want to have this much of this and this much of this and this much of this, and, and we'll need to sell some of this out. And then they will trade the portfolio back into line with what I regard as sort of the optimal portfolio at that time. So let's say that just using Disney as an example, let's say it's trading a 105 and you think that's a, it's a good position. You want to build a 2% position in it or whatnot. And then for whatever reason, the price goes up to 120. Do they just call you and be like, are you still sure, Toby? Or do they just execute the trade because that's what they're being asked to do? They execute the trade. There's never that much movement in a position. But in that event, yes, they would send me any, a note and say, this has moved a lot. What do you want to do? Or this is, it's received a takeover bid. What do you want to do? Because that's, that's happened. That happens all the time. Something gets, you know, particularly because of the way that I invest, I tend to be in stuff that's financially cheap. And so if companies have a strategic reason why they want to own it, so I, th- there's a high proportion of, there just tends to be a high proportion of trades in the portfolio. There are a few takeouts. Interesting. So I would like to start with a quote here for the next question by Sir John Templeton. And he famously said, the four most dangerous words in investing are, this time it's different. So keeping this in mind, what I want to say is different compared to other bear markets. We now have a level of inflation that we haven't had in a long time. And it seems like the Fed is between a rock and a hard place. They can, of course, ease monetary policy to support the financial markets, but inflation will run hot if they do. They can also hike rates to fight inflation, but then financial markets will tank everything else equal. And so whenever I think about deep value, which is where you're an expert, Toby, I'm thinking that inflation is on one hand less of a worry because you want to buy very cheap stocks where the cash flows do not have to be discounted from far into the future. But on the other hand, many deep value stocks also have a lot of tangible assets that you do not want to hold in time of inflation. So you have your, your pros and cons. So how is deep value performing in inflationary times? And have you decided to tweak your portfolio due to some of those concerns? Yeah, I, that's a good question. And thanks for that. I don't change what I'm doing depending on what I think the macro backdrop is. Because what I'm trying to find are things that are so wildly mispriced that it really doesn't matter what happens in a macro sense. And so just, just, to, just to talk about my process a little bit, the first thing that I do is go through and eliminate anything that has the potential for a total loss of capital. So I do that in lots of different ways. One of them is statistical. I just go and look at, do these things have reasonable Altman Z scores? Do they, have, do they have financial strength? Do they have any indications of fraud? Do they have any, any indications of earnings manipulation? Honestly, that, that cut would... The, the companies that I'm putting in the portfolio are so far away from that, that process that that's never impacted any position that would ultimately end up in the portfolio. So it's almost like that's, that's just like a, a tea ceremony part of it that I do that. Manipulation is this sort of question of how are they treating all of the things that they have discretion over in the financial statements? What are they doing with these, these uh, line items in these financial statements? Are they always sort of giving themselves the benefit of the doubt or are they trying to be fair and balanced? A lot of things, the, the manipulation score is this sort of continuum and I can see some companies a little bit more aggressive in the way that they account for stuff than other companies. And on balance, you kind of want the ones that are treating you as partners. You want the ones that are you know, you want the kind of business that you don't have to read every footnote in the financial statements to see if the, how these guys are tricking you. You know, you want the ones that are run by 
people who are trying to help you along as much as, as they are. But that's, that's a big part of the process. And I, then I go through all of the other, you know, the 1001 ways that people have died in the West. You know, I go through and I find all of the ways that we've been, anybody has been blown up in the past and I eliminate all of those ideas. And then from the pool that's remaining, I'm looking for the best risk-adjusted return. And so that's a question of how undervalued, how good is the business, how much cash is being thrown out. Is there a near-term potential for something to happen in the business to make it appear much better than it ordinarily is? And that sort of process is, is partly looking at how fast can this business grow? How much money can this business throw off? And it's partly also, is this trading a sufficient discount? And so those two things together, that's the process more than it is looking at can, what sort of business will do well in an inflationary environment. Having said that, you know, Buffett's early advice where he wrote that, I think he was comparing his own perfor- the performance of his portfolio to gold. And he said that for the period of time that he had looked at it, gold had done comparably well to all of these other portfolios, to all of these other really high quality businesses that he had bought. And I think that there's reasonably good chance that something like that happens in the future too, that it doesn't matter how good the businesses you buy, are you going to struggle to keep up with commodities? And so that might, you might hear that and think, well, a really good place to be then is in commodity businesses. And I do think that they do provide some ballast, but when you have a business that's reinvesting in lots of capital all the time, to earn anemic returns on that capital. Inflation destroys those businesses. They will trade at a big discount to, to what they're worth. So what you want in that kind of scenario is a business that has better returns on its invested capital than it needs to be better than inflation. It needs to be better than the 10-year. It needs to be with a big margin of safety, multiples of them, I would say. But that's sort of already part of the process. I would prefer that kind of business over a comparably valued business that doesn't have those same qualities in it. So my, the, the thing that makes me deep value is I, I really try to pay a big discount to those things, but I am, and I know I've said in the past that you need to be careful with return on invested capital because it is highly mean reverting. And I continue to believe that that is the case. There are definitely some businesses that can re- resist that mean reversion and will do have very robust businesses that it doesn't really matter what happens. We're all going to go out and continue to use those services they are going to survive through whatever comes and they're currently available at a price that allows us to participate along with management because they're a discount. They're not trading at a big premium. That's, that's the big problem, I think, for a lot of investors who've been through this last market cycle, that they think that the stock price performance is the thing that generates all of their returns. And the problem with that view is because they have that view, they're looking for the very best businesses. They're looking for really high growth and really high returns on invested capital. When all else being equal, that's not really what you're trying to find. What you're trying to find is a price that you can pay that can generate enough returns for you as a holder of those businesses. And so the example that I give is the early 2000s when we all remember 1999 and 2000 as a sort of dot-com boom. It's the dot-com bubble. That's what everybody says. But really, the dot-com was a little bit of a sideshow. The main event was companies like Walmart getting way too expensive, Microsoft getting way too expensive, GE getting way, way too expensive. And then from 2000 to 2015, the underlying businesses, they don't know what the stock price is doing. The underlying businesses of Walmart and Microsoft and GE were great. They did really, really well for that 15 years. The stock prices went nowhere and there were two big drawdowns in the interim. 
There was the 2000-2002 drawdown. There was the 2007-2009 drawdown. That could easily happen again for many of these businesses. Yeah, they're great businesses. I don't disagree with anybody. They're really, really good businesses. But at a price, if you overpay for these businesses, you're not going to get sufficiently good returns. What you should be doing as an investor is finding the best risk-adjusted opportunity in the market, which is eliminate all the donuts, try and find the things that are going to generate sufficient return going forward, and then try and buy them at a discount. If you do those things, it doesn't really matter what happens in the market. You are going to be okay. Yeah, and I think it's very important what you said there. It's about purchasing power. It's so easy to be blinded by nominal numbers. That's just not how the world works, at least not whenever you go down to the supermarket and look at the prices that, that you now see. Toby and I did a mastermind discussion about gold, physical gold, not too long ago. I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. So this is not two value investors here talking about that you should buy gold instead of equities. That's, that, that's not what we're saying. We're not supposed to say you should buy gold. But the point is more that what's the real return? And that's what you need to look at. Let's talk, for example, about Buffett. Buffett had fantastic track record, like really outperformed the S P 500. I think that you also referenced in one of your podcasts here recently, Toby, I think it was Chris, Chris Wunstrom, who sent a, a note to, to Buffett about what was it like how much the, the Berkshire had to decline in value before the, it was on par with the S P 500? It was astronomical. It was like 99.8%. It's, it's, it's so far ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And it, it's astonishing, but you should also keep in mind that whenever you hear about a track record like that, and I, do, I don't want to, to bash Buffett in any kind of way, I should be the last person on the planet to, to do that. It's, he's actually the very reason why Preston and I started this podcast, but he's also invested in an inflationary time. And you know, it's easier to get higher nominal returns in inflationary times because you just get you know, a, a rising tide. That's just something to, to think about. So always think about real returns. I'm concerned I talk a little bit too abstract sometimes. So I'm just trying to, in a concrete sense, what you're trying to find is a return on invested capital that is well above what the company is, what the company's cost of capital is. You need to understand what those, if people who understand those terms, that, that is, nobody will disagree with what I've said. That that's the case. If you don't understand what those terms are, then, you know, that's probably one of the first things you need to go and understand. Your, the return on invested capital over the cost of capital of a business the margin between those two things is how you make money in the stock market. The wider that margin is and stays, the more money you make for a longer period of time. The risk, and this is what I've always said, that the risk for return on invested capital is it's highly mean reverting. And so if you think about a cost of capital that stays low and a return on invested capital that is high but mean reverting low, that will crush the value of the company. What you want is a low cost of capital and a stable or rising return on invested capital. And it's a quirk of the market sometimes that th those things are found in, in the businesses that are struggling at, at the time. So they already have the return on invested capital is close to the cost of capital. And so they're not worth very much, but through some sort of business cycle improvement that starts widening out and all of a sudden the value starts being created. And that is really what the value of a business is. It's the difference between the return on invested capital over the cost of capital because there are many businesses that don't earn any margin and those businesses aren't worth book value. They aren't worth the capital that's in them. I've noticed that in uh, SEC, uh, you have a lot of financials in that portfolio. I think that there's still some fear about financials 
from the 2007-2009 crash because that, that, that global financial crisis was really concentrated in the banks and some of the other financials and the insurers. And now people, you know, when I, when I was talking before about the types of business models that you want to avoid, that pennies in front of steamrollers business models, banks are certainly in that class of business and so are insurance companies. And you need to be exceptionally careful with those sort of businesses that for one thing that they can survive. This is the kind of the devil of it though, is that they are very, very good businesses when they get the right conditions. And so we've been going, they've been going into a headwind and they've been trading at a big discount because of this general fear about the business model and the behavior in, in sort of the first decade of the millennium. I think that they've now all got religion. They've got much better balance sheets than they had before. They're much better capitalized than they were before. There's been some consolidation. There's um, a good prospect of them earning more as we as interest rates go up, or even if interest rates just stay where they are. I think that they they are going to be much more attractive looking businesses as we as we go forward. And I I think that you need to be careful going through them that you're buying the ones that can survive. Like there there are lots out there that will be too heavily exposed to drilling in some area or they'll be too heavily exposed to commercial real estate in another area and that, and if they're small and that's a big part of their loan book then they they are at very high risk of you know seeing some sort of material impact to their asset values and so I think you need to be very careful but, but my portfolio is I think it's the sort of the best of the breed and I think that they're all really undervalued and so I, I'm I'm kind of I, I I do think that there's return in financials from here Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T dot com. Corient dot com. As someone who's constantly on the road and traveling, Briggs & Riley has been a game changer that ensures my travel experience is phenomenal. I'm a satisfied customer of Briggs & Riley myself, and I can certainly tell you that their luggage performs. It's extremely durable, it has amazing features that make packing and getting around easier, and they have the best lifetime guarantee in the industry. If your bag is ever broken or damaged, they'll repair it free of charge, no questions asked, even if your airline damages the bag. They also just released their Simpatico collection of hard-sided luggage. It has this new one-touch feature, which allows you to expand your luggage, pack it, then compress it to its original size so a carry-on can still fit in the overhead compartment, plus many other cool features. If you want luggage that was awarded the best carry-on by Forbes, then now's the time to get it. Get your new and improved luggage at Briggs-Riley.com. That's Briggs-Riley.com. 
take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash business gold card. All right, back to the show. I wanted to talk a bit more about your fund and, and running an ETF. And I've always been fascinated with that. Actually, I don't know if you know this, but Preston and I actually talked about setting up an ETF like, I want to say it was like four or five years ago. And we were talking back and forth and it, we weren't like super serious, but we were looking into it at the time. And I think it was around the time that you were also thinking about starting your own. And so we had some back and forth on that. And one reason why I just remember vividly, one reason why I didn't like it was I, I noticed all of that red tape. I'm, I'm not good mm-hmm. with red tape. And I was saying to Preston, you know, yeah, it makes sense for Toby. He's a lawyer. He's he, like, he, <laughs> he, he can handle it. Uh, <laughs> but I'm curious more about the inner workings of an ETF. Uh, f- for example, SIG, uh, you have an expense ratio of, of 89 basis points. I was curious about how that works in practice. Me included, but a lot of our, and also a lot of our listeners, they own an ETF one way or the other. And I don't really know how, how we pay. I'm pretty sure we do. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. But do you sell stocks equivalent to that expense ratio, like once a year, continuously? And what happens with that money? Is that reinvested back into the fund in your name? Is it fees to the exchange or lawyers? Like, How does that business work? There are lots of different ways of setting up an ETF. You can have, you can be in many different roles in relation to the ETF and sort of be a, be the person who is representing the ETF. So you could be a sponsor of an ETF, which they don't really have any of the legal obligations of. So the, the main legal obligation falls on the advisor and I am the advisor. My company acquires funds LLC is the advisor to the acquirer's fund. And what that means is that it's responsible for all of the compliance, all of the trading, it is the responsible entity for that ETF. That's responsible entity is actually a legal term. It's not, it's not the RE, but it is responsible for that ETF. But you could be, there are what they call white label ETFs where that's, it's all of the back end is done by somebody else. And then the sponsor is just sort of the face of the ETF and they don't really have any of those obligations. But as you point out, I was a lawyer for, for a decade. I've been in capital markets and I have some familiarity at least with exchange listing rules and just general compliance. And so it's, it's still very burdensome. And I, I, I pay. So the way that it works is that the fee is calculated on a daily basis and there's a small amount of cash that accrues and it's paid out on a monthly basis. And from that payment, I have to cover the exchange, the, the fees to list on the exchange the audit fees for the fund, all of the compliance in the back end, the custody of the assets, that there's a the the cost to run an ETF is very significant. It's is several hundred thousand dollars a year. And so and that has to be covered from the fee. And to the extent that the fee falls short of the cost of the ETF, I pay for it. And so for the first 18 months of Zig's life, it was well short of that. And I was just paying that amount of money out of pocket. Which is why a lot of people get venture capital backing when they do these things because the the sums are very large. 
I just saved up for it myself and paid for it out of my own pocket. I don't necessarily recommend that to everybody because you need a, a reasonable path to getting to break even. And I, I, had a, I thought that I could get to break even before my money ran out. And it turns out that was true. And so I was a little bit lucky in that sense. But you have to think about that when you're setting these up. Like, can you, there's, the costs to set them up have come down a lot, but they're still pretty significant. And then the cost to operate them are way more significant than the cost to set up. And that's really what cuts people to pieces. That's why, you know, you get to three years and you're still not making money. And you wind up the fund. That's why the average fund winds up in three years because they're super expensive. It's a lot of work in a compliance sense. And then there's also additional stuff on top of that marketing, trading the portfolio, all of those sort of things. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a, a fund is a full time business for about three people, I would say, to sort of to do it properly. You can outsource a lot of stuff and sort of reduce those numbers, but you really need. I think the kind of the bare minimum that you can get away with is probably two or three who, who are going pretty hard. What is the break-even AOM on a typical ETF? And I know that that depends because you might have expense ratio that's higher or lower. So I, I guess that's the first part of my question. The other part of my question is, is the expense ratio, is that the only income you have from running an ETF? The break-even for the typical fund, the break-even is 30 to $50 million or above that. For Zig, it's much, much lower than that because I have a slightly higher fee, which will come down over time, but I have a, a higher fee and I do most of the work myself. So I don't have to engage a lawyer for some things. I do them myself. I don't do a lot of paid marketing. I do a lot of that myself. I run the portfolio myself. I've set up the, the strategy. All of that stuff was sort of is me doing it and I don't pay somebody else to do it. So the revenue for my fund, the break-even for my funds is much, much lower than that, it's still pretty high. It's still a scary proposition out of the gate. And I, will, I want to set up some other funds too. I want to, you know, as we've discussed previously, I'd love to do a global fund. I'd like to do it in Europe. So it's a usage structure rather than ETF. But that still makes me nervous. At some point, that'll need, I don't know what the break even, I haven't done the math, but it'll be similar. It'll be 30 to $50 million. And so I'll have to work out a path to getting, to getting that break even. And so, yeah, you, the fee is fixed what the fee is and any cost above that fee has to come out of the pocket of somebody and if you're you know there may be arrangement between a white labeler and a sponsor in my case i'm the advisor they just give me the bills and i just pay them and if they don't get paid then the fund gets wound up sounds like a stressful job toby <laughs> you know i was a MA lawyer working 100 hour weeks that was a stressful job this is a great job i love it every day I feel your pain. I used to be a commodities trader, uh, trading at night and 24-hour <laughs> exchanges. That was a hard job. This is not a hard job compared to, uh, to that at all. Um, it's a fun job. Yeah, it's, it's a fun job. And, and you know, I, I appreciate, I'm just doing a, a quick detour here. I, I want to get back to you, but it's so weird, like having experience as a commodities trader and tr trading that book and it was intraday trading. So you would hold something physical, physical commodity for three seconds, and then you would sell it again. And you have this crazy, crazy volatility. So whenever, whenever the oil price hit $37, it's like, of course, because you know, I wasn't trading oil, but whenever you have something that's at a fiscal delivery, that marginal price just goes all over the place. You can go from, I don't know, plus 100 euros to like minus 100 euros within the same hour. Like if, it, if, if it's thinly traded enough per megawatt, in this case, it was, it was energy. And so, and it could be even crazy for all the type of commodities. And so it's so weird, like with that background and with that stress that came with it, 
perhaps that's why I was I became a buy hold investor. I, I don't know. It was just it was just <laughs> the irony in that. Going back to you, Toby, uh, you've been guest here on the show more than any other person, which I'm, I'm very grateful that you that you spend <laughs> <Me> uh, <too. laughs> that you spend so much time with with, with us and, and the audience. And it seems like our value investing community are not only interested in your strategies, but they're also interested in you as a person. So I'm curious to hear what does the future hold for you? Do you have any kind of upcoming projects? You mentioned like global ETF before, any kind of other interesting projects that, that might be relevant for our audience? I've mentioned before, I've been writing this new book. So, I, you know, as part of my, I don't know what you call it, my midlife crisis, my, as part of the, <laughs> the changes to the fund, like this sort of, it dawned on me, this sort of idea that all I needed to do to be really successful in this business, and I think this is true for everybody, this is not, this is not unique to me at all, which is why I'm putting it into a book. All you need to do is to survive to fight another day because you will find conditions that are wildly favorable to you. You know, you do get these opportunities that are better than you could possibly hope for. And probably the reason that people become investors is they encounter one of these opportunities early on when they start investing and they get this big payoff and they say, oh, this is really easy, which is exactly what happened to me. And then they go and they spend five or six years in the wilderness kind of chasing that, that opportunity again. But what I've noticed being in this business seeing people fail out of it and seeing people give up and change their strategy and seeing all of the different ways that you can sort of defeat yourself in this business. And I really do think that this is the, the key to it, that to, in any endeavor, is just to make sure that you can continue to do the thing that you're doing and that you don't put yourself at risk of blowing up. And so there, this is a thing that philosophers have considered for thousands of years this is like this is why the source of the book is this idea that sun tzu had this idea when he wrote the art of war the art of war i think is completely misunderstood partly by virtue of the fact that there's a translation done by this gentleman by the name of giles that came out in 1909 he was british he grabbed this story from this thing called the 36 strategies of war so there was this period of time in china called the warring states period and it followed on from the collapse of one empire, and it was this period of several hundred years, and then there was an, another empire that emerged at the end of that. And in the interim, all of these little states warred with each other until there were seven of these states, and they had these. They basically, nobody could ever get the upper hand because you weakened, when you went and attacked your neighbor, you became weak, and your other neighbor on the other side would attack you. And so they developed these, there are these stories about that period called called the, warring, the stratagems of the warring states or the history of the warring states. And um, one of those stories talks about a, a Mr. Sun or a Sun Tzu, which is all that that means. It's a very common name as being a general. And he's about the same period of time that Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, existed, if he did in fact exist. And so there's a story about him chopping the head off a concubine of one of the generals and that story is put at the front of the art of war. It has nothing to do with the art of war whatsoever, but everybody has this impression now that the art of war is about chopping people's heads off. And the translation that I have read, and I've now sort of delved into this a little bit more and read some more of the back, read some more of these other stories. Sun Tzu's art of war comes from this sort of Taoist um, idea. And Taoism is sort of a philosophy something like stoicism. It's not a religion so much as it's a philosophy where religion might be, if you don't follow these rules, then you, know, you go to hell or you, you don't receive the bounties of, of the God. 
in a philosophy, it's just, there's no like canonical book. There's just a number of philosophers who discuss the idea and they all propose their own ways of, of dealing with it. And that's what Taoism is. And Sun Tzu is one of those books. It's just his approach. And if you go and read other books like the Tao Te Ching, which is another well-known Taoist book, it's a surprisingly martial book. It's a lot, a lot of it is about going to war and fighting. And Sun Tzu's is the same. And when you read that book from this sort of Taoist perspective, it becomes pretty clear that what Sun Tzu's identifying that the main sources of, you know, losing your kingdom or losing a battle is the general or the sovereign. So they call the, the king or the emperor the sovereign in the book. Just doing something that sort of invites self-defeat. So getting angry and attacking when they're angry. And so he talks about make the other side angry. Don't get angry yourself. Wind them up and get them all upset. Find the point in time where you have the overwhelming odds and attack when you have overwhelming odds. And he goes through all of these things. And I thought this is, it's amazingly similar to Buffett's strategy. If you take out that sort of martial element, you think about what Buffett's doing. He's looking for these don't get emotional, become, you know, Buffett says this all the time. He says it's more about temperament than it is about intellect. And I think that's very clear from Taoism that that's exactly what they're saying. It's not, he says, Sun Tzu sort of says you can find these haughty generals and you can take advantage of their, their haughtiness or their arrogance or their, their ego or their ability to be induced to anger. And you need to be careful of that, those qualities in yourself. And Buffett says the same thing, you know, conduct yourself in this way that you don't invite disaster doing that. And I think that, I think that's a really great life lesson. But then in addition to that, the natural extension of that in Sun Tzu as well, is that he says you need to, the very first thing he says is like, I look at the five elements and I can see who will succeed. And the first element that he talks about is, is the emperor or the general imbued with the way, or another way of saying that is the moral law. And what they're saying is, does the general or the emperor have this sort of moral right to lead? Are they good? Are they doing things that are good for the, for the people? And if they are doing things that are good for the people, they'll be supported. And if they're not, if they're sort of tyrannical, they're going to be overthrown. And when you look at what Buffett says, he says, you know, you should, and, and Charlie Munger as well, you should conduct yourself in this noble manner. Now, Nobility is a word that sort of sounds like royalty. Like I sort of conflate the two, but they're not at all. Nobility is just this, this old idea of trying to be generous in your dealings, conducting yourself in an honorable way, find other people who do that. This is what Charlie Munger talks about in his seamless web of trust. Find people who you can trust. Find managers who you can trust. Deal with them on a trust basis and give them the benefit of the doubt. And if they don't sort of meet those standards, then, you know, basically never deal with them again. But you can find other people who will behave in this way. And I just think life is better and easier if you can, uh, if you know that that's what you're looking for, and then you've got a standard to hold yourself to as well. You hold yourself to this, you know, behave in a noble manner, be honorable. And I see that in Buffett and I see that in Sun Tzu and I think that that's, it's, a, it's a powerful way of sort of approaching the world. And that's the book. Wow. Well, thank you for, for sharing, Tobias. I, I almost feel guilty because I, I read The Art of War just a few months ago and I kind of felt I, I must have misread something. It is interesting because it's a book about war that's not about war. I certainly didn't read it to the same extent 
at the same deep level as, as you did. It was, it was fascinating to hear what you got out of it. I've said a number of times that I have read it. I read it in high school and I probably read it every five years since high school and hated it every single time. And I had this impression that people who were reading it and saying they were getting something out of it were kind of lying. Like they were all, they were pretending like they had seen this deeper meaning in it as a way of sort of making them appear more intelligent or something like that. And it just didn't exist for me. And I read it over and over and over again. So I've probably read it. It's not an exaggeration to say that I've read it 10 times. And part of the problem is there are so many translations and the differences between the translations are stark. It's kind of funny how many different ways you can, because it's ancient Chinese, it's not modern Chinese, and then it has to be translated from this ancient Chinese into English. And so it's, it's almost sort of, it's almost written in this, it's written as poetry rather than as prose. And so there's different meanings and that the significance of some term to someone in ancient China is wildly different to the significance of that term to us in the modern day. So you need someone who, you need a translation. And so the translation that, that I really like, they're called the Shambhala edition. I'm just blanking on the guy's name, but I've now bought all of his translations because they're so good. Damn, I'll, I'll have to think of it. I, I'm just blanking on his name. I'll remember it a bit. His translation with his foreword really made me understand what the book had been about because I had been familiar with the Giles, which is the more famous one. Giles was the one, he was like a, I think he was a British historian in the early 1900s or the late 1800s. And he had heard this rumor that Napoleon had got a copy of The Art of War and Napoleon had used that to sort of great success. And so they had tracked down the sort of art of war and translated it. It's not a very good translation. And he's very critical at the, at, the, at the front of the book of other people who've been pulling in other bits of information that weren't part of the art of war. And then he goes and does that himself. It's the funniest, it's the funniest thing. It's not a very good translation. If you can find these later ones that, that bring in that Taoist element, they're, they're much better. They're much more easy to understand. And I have to credit that guy. I wouldn't have understood it if I hadn't read that translation at that time. That's one of many, many reasons why I love speaking with you, Toby. We start out talking about current market conditions an interest rate that may or may not go up, and we end up talking about the art of war and, and different translations and, and what Taoism is really about. Toby, thank you so much. It's always so fascinating speaking to you. You always learn so much, and I'm sure the audience feels the exact same way. We learn so much from, from listening to you about, about life, about financial markets. Please give a handoff to anything you like to our audience. Where can they learn more about you, your books, and your fund, Sick and, and Deep? Uh, that's very kind, Steve. I always love coming and chatting to you guys. It's been really fun watching Investors Podcast grow from what is a podcast to like the dominant financial media in the world today. It's better than CNBC because I, I don't like that, you know, they get on the traders and they talk. It doesn't make any sense. There's not enough time for anybody to discuss an idea. Well, what do you think about this here? I like it. Okay, great. Let's move on. And then the nice thing about the podcast format is it's a very long conversation, which you can actually hear what somebody thinks. So I, I'm very grateful that you guys keep on having me on, and I, I hope that I can keep on coming on in the future. If people want to get in contact with me, my website is acquirersmultiple.com. That's got a free screener. It's got links to all of my books. My two funds are Zig and Deep, and so you can find acquirersfund.com or acquirersfunds.com is the manager, and you have to search Deep is the ticker for the small and micro fund. 
And then I'm on Twitter all the time, Greenbacked. It's a funny spelling, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. I kind of post there through the day and I use it as a as like a news feed. So I am there on and off through the day, although I'm trying to cut back because I've, I've got a little Twitter addiction. Toby, thank you so much for your time. I already look forward to our next Mastermind discussion in Q3 with Haru Ramachandra. My pleasure. Thanks, Stig. Thanks for having me. That was all that Toby and I had for this week's episode of the Investors Podcast. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.